John chapter 12, we'll be starting in verse 12, and we'll cover all the way through to verse 19. Uh, if you're newer to the Bible, the book of John is in what we call the New Testament, and it is the fourth book into the New Testament. Well, we learn a lot about people by the way that they come into a space. Uh, just yesterday, we had a privilege uh, to, my wife and I went to a wedding and beautiful wedding out in Jacksonville. And when the bride comes down the aisle, everyone stands, we all turn and watch, and we learn something of that bride in that moment. We also learn something of the groom as we look and he's tearing up and making faces, trying to hold it all in as, as the groom did yesterday. Or maybe, you know, when a president comes into office, we learn something about that person, the way that that happens. When I come home from a long day of work, my wife learns something about me by the way that I act towards her. Maybe I'm impatient or maybe I'm gracious. So the way that we come into a space tells us a lot about ourselves, tells us a lot about other people. What we're going to see today is that we learn a lot about Jesus, a lot about his disciples, and a lot about the crowd through his entering and through his coming into Jerusalem. Uh, the day is, uh, the year, excuse me, is AD 30, and the month is the first Jewish month of Nisan, and it's the 10th day. And actually, interesting, Palm Sunday is actually on a Monday, so Jesus is coming to Jerusalem on a Monday. And again, we're going to learn uh, three things through Jesus' coming into Jerusalem. So John chapter 12, and you're probably there, you probably beat me, John chapter 12, and we'll start in verse 12. Let's start in verse 12, and, uh, and then we'll pray. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, as we'll talk about, this was the Passover feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees, that's why we call it Palm Sunday, and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Verse 16. These things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they, they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify about him. Interesting. For this reason also the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Let's pray. Father, we come with expectant faith to your word this morning. We believe that your word is inspired by your spirit, that it is true, or that every jot and tittle of the word is from you. So Lord, we humble ourselves underneath it this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would show us Jesus. Lord, we pray by your spirit that you would give us understanding. Help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear. We love you, Lord, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So the first thing that I want to note today is that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem signifies his kingship. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem this Palm Monday, Palm Sunday, signifies his kingship. You probably know this, but the Jews for a long time at this point, for at least a thousand years, are waiting for a king. And they refer to him as the Messiah, or in the Greek language, the Christ. So for a long time, they're waiting for this king that their Bibles, their Old Testaments, predicted would come. He was going to bring victory for his people, that he was going to usher in this reign of peace, and he's going to come in the line of King David. And so the Jews have been in this defeated state for a long time, and they're wondering, where is our Mashiach? And what we're going to see in this text is this is the time when Jerusalem, don't exactly know where everyone's heart's at, but they recognize this is the king. And so Jesus coming into Jerusalem signifies his kingship. I want to note a couple different things about this kingship of Jesus. And the first one is this, that his kingship is salvific. I was talking to some friends about the main points of the sermon uh, this past week, and they're like, salvific, is that really a word? It really is, salvific. It's a saving kingship. It brings salvation, and that's what we see. Notice in verse 12 that there was a large crowd who had come to this feast. Again, it was Passover feast. The Passover was a, a celebration, a feast that the Jews would celebrate every year, commemorating the time when God delivered the, the, uh, the Israelites from the Egyptians, and he passed over them because of the shed blood of a lamb that was sacrificed and put over their doorpost. And so here they are celebrating this feast. They're coming into Jerusalem, and it's a large crowd. Interesting, there, there was actually a historian in the first century that estimated that there were 2.7 million Jews who came into Jerusalem for a, a Passover one year. So there's probably, it's probably fair to say there's at least 2 million people that have come into this city of David, Jerusalem, to come and celebrate the Passover. So it's probably fair to say that maybe there's 100,000, a couple hundred thousand that are frenzying around Jesus as he's walking into Jerusalem. I want us to just imagine this for a bit, because this is a story that as Christians we're kind of familiar with, but just imagine the... Uh, just the epicness of this. A couple hundred thousand Jews frenzying around. They're grabbing palm branches off of trees. They're grabbing their coats. Matthew and Mark said that they're taking their coats and these palm branches and throwing them on the ground before Jesus as he's coming in. Imagine rolling out the red carpet. This is what the, the original uh, red carpet was. This is a, a powerful scene and they're shouting, Hosanna, this is our king. And so they're gathering around Jesus as he's coming in. But here's the word that I want to focus on here for a moment. When they say Hosanna, Hosanna means save us, bring salvation. They're saying this is a king who can save us, who can bring salvation to us. Uh, it says in, in uh, John's gospel that they're actually quoting from a psalm. In your Bible, you'll notice uh, most likely that that verse, verse 13, the second half of it is in all caps. And that's the Bible translation's way of saying this is an Old Testament text. So people are shouting out this psalm. And it was a common psalm that they would welcome uh, traveling Jews into the, the temple. But notice that they're adding to this psalm even the king of Israel. They have no question in their mind that this is the king of Israel. Israel hadn't seen a king in hundreds of years. And they're saying, this is him in the line of King David. 
And in fact, in, in a couple of the other gospels, um, uh, Matthew, in fact, records that they're shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. This is our king. This is our Mashiach. This is our Christ. And so they're saying, save us, Jesus. Rescue us. But the thing we have to ask at this point is what kind of saving did these Jews want? Knowing historically a little bit of outside the Bible and from the Bible, there's probably the, uh, many of them that wanted saving from the Romans. If you know anything about history at this point, the Romans were ruling over the Jews for about 90 years at this point. They were under their thumb and they wanted a redeemer. Picture King David with an AK-47 on his back. All right, like we want to take over Rome. And as, as Sam and I were talking about this text this week, that was a fair assumption from them. A lot of the biblical prophecies talk to this about this king, this Messiah that would come and bring judgment and vengeance against their enemies. So they're wanting rescue from Rome. Uh, for some people, picture the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they wanted a, a king who was going to save their religious traditions. We, we want our, our traditions preserved. We want to continue to do things the way that we have done them for hundreds of years. And this is ultimately what got Jesus killed, at least one of the parts, is that the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees did not like that Jesus was disrupting uh, their religious system. And he had no intention of saving it, that's for sure. And for others, maybe they wanted a king that would save them from their physical ailments, that would bring physical providence. Interesting, just in my quiet time just a couple days ago, in John 6, you'll remember there was a story where Jesus fed the 5,000, which was more likely uh, 15,000 because the 5,000 was just speaking of the men. And he fed these people. And uh, it says that Jesus, I'll just read the verse for you. It's really interesting. John chapter 6, it says, some of the people, or that's seven. Chapter 6, it says, so Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force, to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself to pray. So they were going to take him by force because they got lunchables. They got a free lunch. And so they wanted physical providence. I mean, that's, a, that's the kingship that they wanted. That's the saving they wanted. For us today, I think there's probably many of us that want saving from sickness. We want saving from relational difficulties, from financial strain, um, naturally, we want saving from just the difficulties of this life. But this side of the cross, we know why King Jesus came. What, what was Jesus here to save? Like, what was his rescue mission? It was to seek and to save the lost. Jesus saves us from sin's penalty, sin's power, and sin's presence. Sin's penalty, that Jesus came and died for the sins that we've done, and the, he absorbed the wrath of God that is due to our sins. Sam talked about this last week, that we have, we have a just God, and he doesn't just sweep sin under the rug. He can't. He can't be good and just walk away from our sin and pretend like it never happened. So he poured his wrath on his only son, the true Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. That's saving us. That's the rescue plan that Jesus is here to bring. The power of sin. Hopefully you can remember these. There are three Ps. The penalty, power, and presence of sin. The power of sin. Apart from Jesus Christ, hear me. You and me are helpless against the power of sin and our sin nature. We can do nothing but sin, you know? And on top of that, outside of Christ, if we've not trusted Jesus to save us from our sin... 
We're under the power of Satan, the prince of the power of the air. That's the realm that we live in outside of Jesus. We need rescued from that. We need saving from that. Amen, church? And the presence of sin. In Christ, once we die, we will go to be with Jesus. And we, this is amazing. We will forever be freed from the presence of sin and its contaminants. You can say amen. This is good news. This is why Jesus came. And now this is kind of, there's a broad scope. Jesus will one day renovate the entire earth. But this is why he came. He came to save people from the penalty, power, and presence of sin. Just really quick, I want us to be cautious of teachers, of books, of podcasts, of schools, pastors, whatever, that make the emphasis of the gospel and the saving work of Jesus saving us from anything other but sin. So if the main emphasis is God wants to give you hope, God just wants to give you hope, and he wants to save you from a hopeless, despairing life, that's a consequence when we're forgiven of our sin, then as a benefit of that, then we have hope. But apart from being forgiven of our sin, we have no hope. Amen? Or if it's being healed of sicknesses. Once we come in a right relationship with God, you better believe that God can heal us of sickness. But ultimately, when we will have glorified bodies, that's when it's guaranteed that we will be free from sickness. Because a lot of us this morning are suffering with sickness. Mentally, physically, whatever. And so if the promise of the gospel, if the promise of Jesus is saving is he's going to make you well, then, then we miss it. And so I just want to caution us. Um, in a nutshell, that's kind of the prosperity gospel. That we can get something from God. Physical things. Okay, moving on. His kingship is salvific. And then also we see that his kingship is actually prophetic. There was prophecies that were spoken of, of King Jesus all throughout the Bible. Notice in verse 14, it says, Jesus finding a young donkey sat on it as it is written. There's a prophecy about this. And Zechariah, we'll read the whole text in a second. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming to you seated on a donkey's colt. We read the entire verse this morning in our call to worship. This is a prophecy that was spoken of Jesus about 480 years before he came onto the scene. That's pretty impressive. There are hundreds and hundreds of prophecies all throughout our Bibles that funnel us toward and point us toward King Jesus. There's a passage, Isaiah chapter 53 is a famous prophecy of Jesus and the life that he'd live and the suffering death that he would, would die for sinners and there's a story of a guy who printed that passage off in Isaiah 53, which was prophesied 700 years before Jesus. And he printed it out, didn't put any verse numbers on it, didn't say it was in Isaiah, and he gave it to his friends at work who, who weren't Christians, didn't know the Bible. And he said, who would you guess this is talking about? And they all said, Jesus. It's crystal clear all throughout our Bibles that there's a salvation that's promised in King Jesus it's pretty impressive. It says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 and 11, that uh, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you uh, made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And it says, as, as it was revealed to them, that they were not serving themselves in these things, but you. Now you've had this gospel preached to you. So all our Bible is speaking of this king. 
And as we'll see just in a moment, the disciples didn't really understand it. They took a little while to catch up to speed. But I want to just start and just do a little bit of a, a storyline of this kingship idea that's been prophesied of in Scripture. The, the place it really starts is Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, which we've said again and again is what? The Proto-Evangelion, which means the first gospel. There was going to be this seed of the woman, which was Eve, who's going to come and conquer the enemy. And so there's this shadowy figure of some future king that the Jews are clinging on to. At the end of that book in Genesis, you can look at this later, Genesis chapter 49, Jacob prophesies that his son Judah, he says, the scepter will not depart from Judah. And the Jews understood that this is kingship language. There's a king that's going to come out of this line of Judah. And then we see King David comes onto the scene, who is in the line of, guess what? Judah. And God promises him, from your line, I will establish a throne and a kingdom that will last forever. And Jesus comes onto the scene, and they're saying, son of David, this is the king. This is the one we've been waiting for. And then at the end of his life, when he rose from the dead, what did he tell his disciples? Some authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. Most authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. All authority is mine on heaven and earth. I'm the king, you guys. And at the end of the Bible, it's really interesting. Here Jesus is riding in on a donkey. There's humility here. There's lowliness here. But at the end of our Bibles, we see a different picture of King Jesus coming back. And I think more than ever, us as Christians need to hear these truths. Revelation 19, picture in your mind King Jesus. It says, and I saw heaven opened up, and behold, a white horse, not a donkey, but a war horse. And he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems or many crowns. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. Isn't that just cool? If anything else, that's just cool. No one knows the name. And he's like, it's just me. No one knows. I just think that's cool. Moving on. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Can you picture the scene? From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. The scepter will not depart from Judah. Here it is. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is our king. He's been talked about all throughout scripture. And here he is coming onto the scene. I think in our culture, in our moment that we're living in right now, a lot of people have a tendency to view Jesus, not this way, but as sort of a guru, He's a moral guide. He lived a, a good life, and I, and I can follow a life like that. He's kind of a new age teacher. He has mystical principles that we can tap into and tap into the Christ spirit, right? There's a lot of views of Jesus in, in our circles. I want us to think about this some. In our culture, our culture is very confused about who King Jesus is. I just want to say this, just what the text says. He is a powerful, righteous king that came to 
emptied himself of his glory and humbled himself to become a man and be crucified and hung naked on a tree for your sin and my sin. But he will come back in justice. Our king will make every wrong right. And this is the king that we serve, King Jesus. So Jesus is coming into Jerusalem signifies his kingship. The second thing that we're going to see is that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem uh, is best understood after his glorification. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem, secondly, is best understood after his glorification. How well do you think his, under, his disciples understood this? Like, how well were they capturing it? And we'll see, they, they were really getting it. And the, it's really interesting. The apostle John kind of writes commentary on this, and he says, yeah, we didn't really get it. We didn't really understand what was going on. Uh, do you ever feel like you don't understand the Bible? Okay, well, you're in good company because these guys didn't understand it as well. Let's read this uh, verse 16 again as we see this truth. It says, these things his disciples, John, who's writing this is one of them, did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him, that there are these prophecies written of him. And then it finishes uh, by saying, and that they had done these things to him. So apparently Jesus' life and teachings, even for those who were really close with Jesus, are best understood once he's glorified. One of my questions that I have as I read the gospel, and I think it's supposed to stir up in us a little bit, is why didn't the disciples get it? Three years walking shoulder to shoulder with Jesus, theology lessons with the king of the universe, they went to the Bible school where Jesus was the teacher, right? Like, they, but they still just didn't get it. You know, well, we'll talk about why. But let me just, let me break this down a little bit. First, we need to ask, why is glorify, uh, Jesus' is being glorified kind of the key in understanding these truths? Well, what is Jesus' glorification? What does it mean when John says that we understood these things once Jesus was glorified? Jesus' glorification, Jesus being glorified, is a shorthand way of saying that, talking about Jesus' glorious bodily state after his resurrection. Jesus resurrected and had a real physical body. He didn't just kind of have this floaty ghost thing going on. He could eat food. He could talk to his disciples. People saw him. He had holes in his hands and hole in his side. And yet he's walking through walls and he ascends into heaven. So there's kind of a different version of his body and yet it's still this glorified body. So I think that's part of it. And then secondly, Jesus' glorification also describes his ascension into heavenly glory. The Bible talks a lot about Jesus' glorious reign at the right hand of the Father. And so this is part of Jesus' glorification, which means that then he sends the Spirit. Because Jesus is glorified, then the sending of the Spirit is able to happen. So, then the question we need to ask is, why did Jesus need to be glorified for them to get it? Why did Jesus need this resurrected body and to go into heaven and send the Spirit for his disciples to understand it? Well, to fully understand the truth, track with me, the disciples needed the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus would send, in light of his glorification. The Apostle Paul says that the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. We don't get the Bible. In our flesh, we don't want to get the Bible. Jesus said to his disciples as he's counseling them and telling them, hey, I'm going to get ready to go. And not just go to the cross, but I'm going to go back to heaven in glory. And I'm going to have a glorified body. 
And his disciples at the end of John's gospel are very concerned about this. Peter even took Jesus aside and rebuked him for it. What are you talking about, Jesus? And Jesus says to his weary disciples, and he says this, it is to your advantage that I go away. What does that ever make sense? Okay, so you're God with us, and it's to our advantage that you leave. He says this, because if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, the Holy Spirit. So I must be glorified for you to understand these things. Uh, And he clarifies just a few verses later. He says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Like, I got a lot more to talk to you guys about, but you just won't understand it. But he says this, when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. One last verse on this idea of the spirit and our need for him in light of Jesus's glorification. The helper, Jesus says again to his weary disciples, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Hey, didn't, we, we didn't understand what was going on at this point, but when Jesus was glorified and we received the Spirit, it all clicked. Do you remember when you received the Spirit of God into your life? Maybe it was over a season, maybe it was in a moment where the gospel just clicked Everything was firing in your mind. It all started to make sense. I can remember, I didn't always wear glasses, if you're wondering. About five or six years ago, I was driving with a friend of mine, and this person wore glasses, and I was curious how blind they were. Have you ever done this? Like, come on, let let me see what you're working with. So I put the glasses on, and instantly everything got crystal clear. And I had no idea that I had issues with my eyes. I'm like, okay, so you're supposed to be able to see road signs as you're coming up to them. And so anyway, so I'm thinking, well, I probably need to get glasses. So I got glasses and turns out my eyes were even worse there than their eyes. And I'll never forget on the way out of the, the eye doctor and I got in my car and I was leaving the parking lot in Medford and I could see like the individual gravel pieces on the ground of the asphalt. I'm like, what? This was here the whole time? I could see all this? And on, then on the way home, I'm going to Rogue River from Medford, and I'm looking up at the mountains, and I could see, like, individual trees. It's all right there. And then the whole time, I didn't know. So I needed lenses to be able to see it. Otherwise, I never would have saw it, never would have understood it. And the same truth is true of us as Christians. We need the Spirit of God to help us understand these things particularly as someone who's not born again yet, doesn't, hasn't come into the fold, doesn't know Jesus yet. Like all this stuff is uber mysterious. So God became a man and was a carpenter and died for sinners and rose again. It's foolishness to the world, to those who are perishing. It's the power of God for us who are being saved. And it's because the spirit. And I just want to say, if you're not a Christian yet and you're kind of from the outside looking in and things are fuzzy and not very clear, Um, You need the Spirit of God in your life to show you that. And so if you trust in this glorified Jesus, that he really has risen from the dead, there is a living God who rose from the dead and is seated at the right hand of the Father, that he can send his Spirit into your life and make sense of these things, then it's going to click. And we know as Christians, even as those who have been walking with the Spirit for some time, There's so much that just does not make sense still. And I want to say to those who maybe maybe you're a Christian and you are a critical thinker. 
For some of us, faith is easy. You never doubt it. It's just easy. But there's some people who just are naturally a little bit skeptical. Maybe you're a mathematician. Maybe you're kind of the engineer brain. And, and faith is just hard. I just want to know, uh, I want you to know, take courage, Christian. Faith is very hard. But to know that you can press into the spirit and trust him that he will make sense of the Bible, of the gospel. When we get up to preach and we pray, God, help us understand That's not just for show. We really need the Holy Spirit's help. When you get up in the morning and you're going to read the Bible, just tell God, God, I am desperate. I need your help to understand your word. And you know what? He shows up. And so I just want you to be encouraged. If faith maybe has been hard in this season for you, things aren't making sense, the Bible's tricky, um, know that, first of all, you're not alone. And then second of all, uh, that the Spirit is more than happy to help you. Lastly, is we're seeking to engage our culture. I think so many Christians are surprised when our culture rejects the gospel. Let's not be surprised. They don't understand these things, and we need to be patient and kind and gracious as we try and share the gospel, try and share the word, and hope and pray that the Spirit of God is beginning to soften those hearts and tenderize them to these truths. And we can be a a testimony to them of these truths. Hey, once I was blind, but now I can see. It's not because I'm smart. It's not because I'm wise or more intelligent than you or because I grew up in a Christian home and you didn't. It's because God sovereignly, graciously opened my eyes to these truths and he can do that for you too. And that actually leads us to our last point. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem is supported by testimony. This is really interesting. Look with me in verse 17. It says in the people, verse 17, who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify about him. If you remember in chapter 11, Jesus rose a guy from the dead who was dead, like really dead for four days. And the people who were there are there testifying, hey, I saw this guy raise a guy from the dead. This is fascinating. Actually, if you just go up to verse 9, just back up a few verses. Uh, people were, well, just, I'll just read the text. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, that is Bethany, where Lazarus was, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but they might, that they might see Lazarus. Yeah, Jesus is here too, but where's Lazarus? That guy was dead. Where's he at? I want to see Lazarus. But the chief priest, verse 10, planned to put Lazarus to death also. Isn't this fascinating how hard their hearts were? I want to kill the guy who Jesus raised from life or from death. That's amazing. And then verse 11, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. So this is fascinating. So Jesus raised this guy, Lazarus, from the dead. And people that were there that saw Lazarus raised from the dead are in this crowd. And they're telling people, I saw this king resurrect a man from the dead. He said he's the resurrection and the life, and I believe it, and I want to testify to that power to you. And this is actually one of the main uh, essences of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, that we're witnesses of his power. We're to give testimony to his power, his resurrection power in our own life. 
If you remember, Jesus said to his disciples right before he ascended into heaven, he says this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. You shall testify both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And that's actually the outline of the book of Acts. Start in Jerusalem and it just spreads outward because the Christians were faithful to testify of what they knew to be true. That guy rose from the dead and he's God. And he can save sinners and he can save you too. It's natural for you and me to testify of what we've seen to be powerful, of what we've seen to be beautiful, of what we've seen to be amazing or delicious. We talk about what we love. We testify about what we love. For example, if you spend a Saturday hiking to Totiki Falls, I think I got that right, up off the North Umpqua River, and you with your own eyes witness the two cascading waterfalls, one's about 30 feet, one's about 90 feet, and you hear the thunderous roar of those waterfalls crashing into the water and echoing through that canyon, it's not awkward to talk about that to those at your work. If you've waited for a year and a half for a new video game to come out, and it comes out, and then you spend 19 hours in a row playing that video game, when you get to school that week, guess what? That's not nerve-wracking to talk to your friends and testify to your friends about that video game. Some of you in here are grandparents. When your grandkids begin to play t-ball and do ballerina and just do baby things, whatever baby, we're having a baby, so we're, we're working into that. It's not awkward for you as grandparents to show those pictures to anyone who will watch, right? What am I getting at? Actually, one last one, because this is, when I met my wife, I talked about her to anyone who would listen. I didn't even know her yet, but I'm like, Jasmine, you know, maybe she'll like me, whatever. It wasn't hard for me to testify of her beauty, of her kindness. Why? Because it's natural to talk about what we find beautiful, what we find powerful. We're all evangelists. We all do this. We all talk about what we're excited about. And perhaps the reason is we're thinking about us giving testimony to the power and life of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in our own lives. Part of the reason maybe that we find it so awkward, so nerve-wracking to talk to other people about Jesus is because we aren't very enamored with Jesus anymore. It's not as powerful for us as it once was. Gosh, do you remember, some of you, do you remember when you first came to know Jesus and it was like all you could think about? You're telling everyone who would listen. You hardly knew anything about the Bible, but you're just telling everybody. It's because you were enamored with his beauty. And this is what I think we need to get back to. And, and I think there's a couple different reasons that we might have a hard time giving testimony of Jesus's life and power in our life. One is we might have forgotten our first love. Jesus rebukes the church in Ephesus uh, in the book of Revelation. You can look at it in chapter 2, I believe it is. And he says, you guys got great doctrine. You are refuting people who are heretics, but you've forgotten your first love. The wonder, the sweetness, the aroma, the life of the love of Jesus for you personally. You've forgotten it. And so maybe that's where you're at today. Christianity's become dry and worn, and old, and boring, and 
maybe it's not because of the church you go to, or maybe it's not because of the people that you're around. Maybe it's you've forgotten your first love. Jesus says to repent and turn back to your first love. So I just want to encourage us. Maybe that's where you're at today. And it's the power of Jesus has gotten old and stale uh, to turn back to your first love. Maybe you're thinking, no, I love Jesus. I am so excited about Jesus. I've been, never been more excited about Jesus, but I lack confidence in the Bible. I don't know my Bible very well. There's questions I have. And, and what if someone says, well, what about that? What about the Canaanites? What about the flood? I want to give us a, a few words that are really helpful. You can just tell them, I don't know. If you don't know something. In fact, I think people pick up on when we are trying to force that we know something that we don't actually know. Just to say in humility, you know, I don't know, but I've personally experienced the power and life of King Jesus in my life. And I want to tell you what I do know, that he rose from the dead and he's conquered the grave and he can do that in your life too. And so I just want to say, yeah, like just share what you do know and also get to know your Bible better. Like, we should be students of the word, right? Like, there's really no excuse. We have the entire Bible that we can have in 18 different translations any time of the day. So we should read our Bible so that we maybe will have some more confidence. Uh, Just a little plug, actually. In a few weeks, I forget when, Sam, but we're going to be doing a kind of apologetics worldview class where we'll be helping you to understand different worldviews and different cultures and how to engage those with the gospel. Um, Anyways, that's just a secret little plug for you. Lastly, if testifying of Jesus, talking about Jesus, giving witness to who Jesus is in your life is really hard for you, there might be a chance that you know a lot about him, but you don't know him. There have been pastors who've gotten saved, people who know the truth. We, we, we're in the truth all the time, but we don't actually come to know the person of Jesus, That's possible. And so maybe today is just the day for you to come and to trust in Jesus for the first time. To say, Jesus, I think I know a lot about you, but I don't know if I've ever actually talked to you. It's as simple as that. Stop talking about God and start talking to God. God, I know that I am a sinner. I know that I have sin in my life. I'm obviously guilty before you, but I know that your son Jesus died for my sins and rose again. Please forgive me of my sin and send the spirit in my life to help me understand these things. There's no amount of good things that we have to do before coming to him or anything like that. Uh, Jesus will take us right where we're at. So Jesus is coming to Jerusalem, tells us a lot about Jesus. It signifies his kingship. He's the king of the universe. It is best understood after his glorification. We need the spirit of God in light of his resurrection to illuminate truth and understand his truth. And it's supported by testimony, which we can be a part of. Church, I want to give you just a, a, one last exhortation, one, one last encouragement. Prayerfully consider sharing Jesus with someone this week. Who's one person who's in your life who can say, you know what, I, I don't know if they know Jesus. And maybe you could just ask them, hey, do you have any background in church? Do you, have you ever heard of Jesus? Do you have a Bible? Like, just bring it up and, and watch and see what the Lord will do that, with that. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we want to be spirit-filled testifiers of the gospel that we've experienced in our life. Lord, I pray for, for us who maybe Christianity has gotten dull. Lord, that you would light a fire again. That you would send your spirit into their life, into all of our lives. 
to actualize these truths that we know to be true, that we would feel them, we would long for them once again. Lord, use us as Philippi Church to reach this community with the truth of Jesus Christ and him crucified. We want to be your hands and feet. Give us boldness in our mouths to speak the gospel to those who are around us. And King Jesus, oh, how we love you. Oh, how we love you. Show us your power and your glory this week in practical ways. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.